Wurundjeri on Wurundjeri land. We pay our respects to elders past and present. Sovereignty was never ceded. This episode contains descriptions of war injuries and disability, mental illness, suicide and suicidal ideation, murder, facial injuries, pandemics and illnesses, comas, domestic violence and murder by intimate partners, and some naughty language. It may not be suitable for all listeners. This episode also contains discussions of medical issues and should not be taken as advice. We are two historians, not medical professionals, both of whom still live with our parents because no one pays historians enough. Three out of five of our parents do have medical experience, one of whom is a nurse and two others who work in hospitals. But again, we are not medical professionals. If you have any questions about COVID-19, you should speak with a medical professional or your doctor. We would, however, if you have not yet been vaccinated against COVID-19 and you are able to, we would humbly ask you go get vaccinated. In Flanders fields we do not lie, where poppies grow and larks will fly forever singing as they go, above the bodies row on row of those whose duty it was to die. We are the maimed, death did deny its solace. Crippled, blind, we try to find on earth the peace they know in Flanders fields. Forget us not, as years go by, on your remembrance we rely, for love that sees the hearts below our broken bodies. Else we grow to crave the peace with those who lie in Flanders' fields. Hi, I'm Hannah, and my arm feels like it's going to fall off because I had my second dose of vaccines yesterday, and I'm very excited. I'm also a... PhD student who only has about six months left of her PhD, which is fine. And I study women research women. I study not women. I research women protesting nuclear bombs in the nineteen fifties and nineteen sixties. And I'm Nicola, and I was fully vaccinated a few months ago. Uh, just to rub that in, Hannah, because you're not immune for two more weeks. And I am a historian and teacher about the history of gender, crime, and masculinity. Uh, yeah, that's my introduction. Tick. <laughs> Step one done. And welcome to Women of War, a podcast where we talk about women in war. Funnily enough, it's in the name. Uh, women who have been involved in wars throughout history in various different conflicts and in various different ways to show how complicated the subject is. Yeah, and usually, as you would know, because chances are this is not your first episode you're listening to, we usually talk about one woman or a group of women kind of, you know, chronologically speaking, throughout a war, we explain why they're there, what they're doing there and who they are. But today's format is a little bit different. First, we're going to talk about World War One in Australia, a pandemic that happened around the same time. And also, we're going to talk generally about the effects of returned servicemen's disabilities on gender roles in the Australian interwar period, that is 1919 to 1939-ish. And then we're going to talk about the mother of anaplastology, Anna Coleman Ladd, whose work kind of bookends what we discussed in our episode on Roberta Cowell, um, where we also discuss the work of the father of plastic surgery, Dr. Harold Gillies, who also came out of World War One. Coleman Ladd was a successful American artist who detoured into creating prosthetic faces for the men of the First World War who'd suffered facial injuries or disfigurements at the front. But we're going to talk about her later in the second half of the episode. Um... We promise so. We promise there will be a woman of war, but we're going to look at some women of war and men of war before we delve into her. So, Hannah, where are we going to begin? So, on June 28, 1914, a Serbian shot the heir to the Austro Hungarian throne in Bosnia. This Where's is... your Bosnia? Pardon? Where's your Bosnia? Near Herzegovina. Ah. Yeah. That gland, eh? That gland. Yeah. This has, uh, you know, since widely become regarded as a bad move on the part of the Serbian. So, in Australia, where we are currently speaking from... Rather, we're actually speaking from the Sovereign Republic of Hukturnistan under the reign of beloved Premier for Life, Daniel Andrews. I have my latte here ready to go. Yep. But it was Australia at the time. So, in Australia, 330,000 men turned out to join the Australian Imperial Force, AIF. Of this, 60,000 would die during the war on the battlefields of the Somme. 
They would lie alongside their companions from Australia and across the British Empire, men from India, New Zealand, Britain and Canada. One such man, John McRae, wrote the famous poem In Flanders Fields, casting judgment upon those who would call for peace with Germany after thousands of men had already perished fighting in the Great War. In Flanders fields the poppies blow, Between the crosses row on row that mark our place, And in the sky the larks still bravely singing fly, Scarce heard amid the guns below. We are the dead, Short days ago we lived, Felt dawn, saw sunset glow, Loved and were loved, and now we lie In Flanders fields. Take up our quarrel with the foe, to you from failing hands we throw the torch, be yours to hold it high, if ye break faith with us who die we shall not sleep, though poppies grow in Flanders fields. You know, I've been to Flanders fields. Yeah. And that's when the poppy, the poppies did grow between the crosses, Rowan, Rowan <laughs> but I actually also stepped on a plant I have an allergy to, so I had to, like, run off in the middle of, like, our talk to find a bathroom where I could, like, wash my hands and stuff to, like, get the, get the plant off me. <laughs> Are you sure you weren't just sniffing the poppies? Um, yes, I am very sure, because the plant that I'm allergic to isn't native to Australia, so it's not here. So it's like, oh no, the one thing I'm basically allergic to. <laughs> Surprise! I really do love um, In Flanders Fields because it is an angry poem. The way mm. I was introduced to it, it's not an angry poem. Like, because when you're a kid, you read it very solemn. Because in Australian schools, at least, mm. there's like picture books with this poem in it, and you read it in like a very solemn, respectful manner. But it's actually quite an angry song. So the fact of the matter is. Those who return from war physically or mentally affected by conflict are often, or pretty much always, invisible in Australian military commemoration. Until recently, the closest we got to acknowledging the mental affliction of of war trauma was allowing men to shed a few tears on Anzac Day, and only on Anzac Day, and only in a very heroic, masculine manner. It's like two up, it's only legal on Anzac Day. (laughs) More men survived World War I and returned to Australia than those who died overseas, but it would be understandable if you thought the reverse. The focus is solely on the dead. They shall not grow old as we that are left grow old. Fresh in our memories. <laughs> Thanks, Woolworths. Age shall not weary them, nor the years condemn. <laughs> Watch me condemn. So um, often these injuries are not as visible as you might assume. The iconic image of the Wobble One disabled soldier, someone with a missing limb, say, returning from war, was not actually that common. Less than 3,300 men of the RAF were known to come home with a limb missing. However, around 30% of return servicemen were on war pensions, and in 1939, 77,000 men of the first AIF were still living with war-caused disability, if you assume everyone on the disability pension. And only those people are living with mm-hmm. a disability, when mm-hmm. often they weren't allowed to access the pension. 16,000 so Yeah. 16,000 AIF soldiers were gas attack casualties which could affect their eyes, throats, lungs or skin. The men of the AIF's life expectancies were also dramatically shortened. I also asked da- my dad for some anecdotal evidence because he's like older. Uh, at- so he was born in the mid 50s and his grandfather who was in World War 1 died in 1949. So I was like, did you ever see men going around from World War 1 with like missing limbs or facial injuries? And he didn't see any, but the majority of them would be in their 60s or 70s by that point. Mm-hmm. Um so we didn't but he also didn't see a lot of World War 2 return servicemen either. And again, part of it's like maybe they just weren't where he lived, but he lived in an area that it was like post-war um, construction zone of like growth where even his own parents had both been involved in World War II. Everyone around that area was involved in World War II. So you'd think he would have seen some, but he never noticed any. Yeah. So they could have not been there, but they could have also been hidden away. Yeah. Or it could have been as well, like if he's a kid, he may not just be paying attention. Yeah, that's what he said. <laughs> so, <laughs> they could have just been walking past him like every day and he's just like, yeah, it's a man. The old legless Johnny. I wonder why he's got no legs. Anyway. <laughs> so this absence of memorialization and recognition of the disabled is seen mostly clearly is seen most clearly with the physical design of Melbourne's Shrine of Remembrance. It's on top of a big hill, which good luck getting there if you're one of the men who lost one or both legs or has damaged lungs from a gas attack. But we can see it from a nice distance away, so that's lovely. It's also a silent building. 
Good luck appreciating that if you're one of the men who lost his vision in the war due to gas attack or shrapnel or being shot in the face. The shrine cost around £200,000 when it was built, which is around $14 million today. I Some think. Town- it, I couldn't find exact numbers and I didn't look very hard. Look, £200,000 in the 1930s is a lot. In the Great Depression. Yeah. yeah, like that's a lot of money. So $14 million sounds right to me in my understanding of historical economics, which is zero. Yeah. Some towns did welcome home the soldiers who had been injured in the war, even giving them medals. But these acts of goodwill soon faded into the past as the soldiers came home and domestic peacetime life returned. The men who'd been injured in the war became invisible as they died off, and those who had died at war took the narrative and memorialization focus. Pensions for men with disabilities or war widows were very small, and there weren't actually that many married men who went off in the AIF at first, so all quite young, tragically. Work for men with disabilities um, became thin on the ground. So remember, this is the time of manufacturing and agriculture as primary industries in Australia. And the Great Depression later exacerbated these issues and no one could find work. One of the most enduring images of interwar Australia's neglect of returned servicemen to me is the mental image of returned soldiers labouring to build the Shrine of Remembrance, a monument to the dead, as their own issues were downplayed, ignored or put down to a weakness of character, which is Mm -hmm. true. They were forced, they, not forced, they were chosen to work on the shrine's construction. But to what I end? thought you meant that the weakness of character was true. And I was like, you're a very different person to who I thought you were. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, oh, this is an awkward point to laugh. Um, and some return servicemen killed themselves. We will never know how many committed suicide due to their war trauma, mostly for two reasons. One, we just sometimes men would kill themselves and that it wasn't noted as a suicide. And no one at the time was collecting official statistics on self-murder, which is what it was sometimes called back then. But there were a couple of high-profile suicides, including that of Western Australia's VC winner, Hugo Throssell, who was the husband to the ardent communist and writer Catherine Susanna Pritchard, and also Harold's Victoria Elliott. (laughs) And there was also a kid across the road got a drum set, so if you can hear drums in the background, that's what that was. Love lockdown. That kid's having a good day. (sighs) And there's also Victoria's Harold Elliott, who was more commonly nicknamed Pompey, Pompey Elliott. Um, there's a big memorial thing to him in Camberwell, if you're ever driving through there. And his suicide was actually covered up before being dramatically revealed in a newspaper. Historian Jesse Lucock is also currently working on a project around return servicemen suicide in both the First World War and the Second World War. Murder suicides were also not unheard of, such as in The Hundred Stories by Bruce Gates and Melanie James and Rebecca Wheatley. Um, but they tend to be buried <laughs> or forgotten. Suicide was seen as a really shameful act, and those who killed themselves were seen as condemned to hell or purgatory in the overwhelmingly Christian and or Catholic interwar Australian period. So one such case, which was discovered by Dr. Rebecca Wheatley in for the 100 Stories Project, was that of Frank Wilkinson, his wife Elizabeth, and his daughter Isabella. I had a Frank- momentary freak. He hadn't done this bit, and I was like, we're going to have to stop. <laughs> I do my work. I'm a good girl. That makes one of us. (laughs) Frank signed up eagerly to join the war. He fought at the Third Battle of Ypres, where his brave actions saw him awarded the military medal. After the war, Frank trained as a sheep shearer in the UK while awaiting repatriation to Australia. It was while in the UK that he met Elizabeth. Upon returning to Australia, Frank, Elizabeth and their infant daughter Isabella moved to country Victoria as part of the Soldier Settlement Scheme, which we'll go into in more detail later, but essentially aimed to help returned servicemen by throwing them in the Australian outback without any training, and often with visible and invisible injuries, and expecting them to create a productive farm in a drought, and then later on in a depression. Frank was better set up than most, because he did have that brief period of training in sheep shearing, but that was in England, where conditions are slightly different than in Australia. By 1927, Frank, like many other soldier settlers, was in deep debt, was struggling with his health after gas attacks in the war, and he was also struggling mentally. His wife feared that he was at breaking point and was glad that the family had made the decision to leave the farm. However, the morning they were supposed to leave, Frank strangled his wife and smashed her head in with a hammer, before killing four-year-old Isabella and slitting his own throat. It took Elizabeth a few days to die during which that time she absolved Frank of his actions, telling doctors, quote, he couldn't help it, he couldn't help it, end quote. 
Yeah, I don't always agree with that book's assessment on the murder suicide stuff, but um, that's not that relevant. That's not really relevant right now. Yeah. Yeah. No. All right. It's, it's yeah. just it's <laughs> a stone. It's a stone cold bummer. It's a stone cold bummer. So uh, the hundred stories is, as we previously discussed, a stone cold bummer. Um, it was written in reaction to this the politicalization of the Anzac centenary, the hundred years centenary of World War One, in but the also the landing on Anzac by Anzacs at Gallipoli in nineteen fifteen, which is a very very important but also heavily politicized month and date for a lot of people in Australia, not so much New Zealand, um, which and is heavily nice. mythologized as well as politicized. Yeah, so um, Bruce Gates, a professor of history, was on the board, I believe, for the government um, talking about how they were going to commemorate the centenary and one of the people on the board said they wanted Anzac to leave people with a warm, fuzzy feeling and Bruce is sitting there with his hands full of dead and dying soldiers and their beaten families. Like, that. that's not true. No one was happy after the war. Uh, and that's where that book sort of came from. So The Hundred Stories is a important text with a clear message that wants to push through your skull, into your brain, and into the little poppy that resides beneath every Australian's amygdala that gives us all the compulsion to allow the government to fund anything to do with Anzac, including the John Monash Interpretive Centre at Villas Bretton Oak, which nobody wanted, nobody. least of all John Monash. I'm not a yep. psychic, but I can tell what he would have wanted from beyond the grave. Um, and it cost $100 million. And to put that in perspective, one of the schools I did placement at didn't have enough chairs for students. Why are we talking about returned servicemen with disabilities and why aren't we calling them veterans? Great question, Hannah. Thank you for asking it like I scripted you. So uh, I actually did call them veterans in my thesis because I was over the word limit and a veteran is one word and returned servicemen is two. Uh, and I think until recently people mostly did say returned soldiers or returned servicemen, but veterans like taken off recently. Um, because I think veteran suicide has become like the catchphrase to discuss that particular modern issue. Well, I reckon there'd be issue. an element of Americanization there as well. Oh, like, definitely. We've adopted so much <sighs> of American like rhetoric, particularly in recent years. So I figure like American veterans. More of it too. Yeah. So I feel like that would be part of why it's growing in popularity. Let me yeah. just drink and my I cider and cry. I do know that Vietnam veterans prefer veteran because they were excluded from the return servicemen circle because of the controversies around the Vietnam War, and it does alliterate, which is nice. But other than that, yeah, I, I'm trying to always make myself say return servicemen now because I I just don't like the word veteran. It has, like, an American mouthfeel, you know? Yeah. yeah. So I hear you asking, why are we talking about return servicemen with disabilities in a podcast on women and war? Well, Hannah, great question. <laughs> I know when we both started this podcast, we said we weren't going to get too political, and we're not. But a lot of the dialogue I and you and a lot of people have been hearing around coronavirus in Australia is really reminding me of the post-war experiences mm-hmm. of returned servicemen and how they were understood in Australia. It's often remembered as a zero-sum game. You either died at war or you survived and came home and went back to, air quotes, regular life and air quotes and it's the same with covid some vocal minorities are really turning to this idea of enough lockdowns let's open up some people will will die but we're at war with this virus this is a war and if we have to sacrifice one percent of the population be it and like some countries have had to do that and that's a horrendous inconceivable cost to me but also one percent of our population is a quarter of a million people that is two and a half mcgs or just over seven olympic size swimming pools if you liquefy all the dead and assume they weigh about 70 kilos each why would you use that statistic like that well i thought it'd be funny to be like hey it's this many olympic size swimming pools because people always do that with like water and stuff like but then it was like oh what about the gaps between them and I had to practice some maths for um, school, so I was like, volume it is. Sure. Sure. Anyway, okay. So what I also find really interesting... Okay, so first of all, that's not how it works because you don't just get COVID and either die or get better. Um, but what I find interesting is at the start of COVID, I don't know if you remember, but like right at the start, like March, April 2020... There was all these like poems and images of World War One going around where people were like, well, these soldiers had to suffer and society yep. was like, you know, everyone pitched in and oh, now you all we're to being told home. is exactly. So like the narrative at the start was using World War One to make people stay home and now it's using 
war to be like, oh, let's go out. I just find that really interesting, like, the switch. Like, it's been used for both sides over the course I of I think World War Two because there's better images of World War Two, but I, I do remember that completely. No, it was World War One because people were also linking it to the Spanish flu. Oh, that so makes sense. it was like, yeah, so it was this whole huge thing, like, and Gallipoli is always Ugh. a fun buzzword for everybody. Else. These boys probably wish they could have stayed home, but they didn't because they had to fight the Germans. There weren't that many Germans on Gallipoli. Shut up. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah. But, yeah, with COVID, like, it's not, you know, either or. It's You can be affected by it for a long time, and we don't know the long-term effects of it. Um, because it hasn't been around long enough. And we both know a couple of people who've had it. Um, and luckily the ones we know have recovered more or less just fine. But there's so many people overseas and here who either have severe health issues from the months recovering from the illness. Um, you know, or they're people on oxygen full time or they suffer renal issues. Um, so we don't know if COVID affects you 5, 10, 15 years down the track. And there is a historical precedent for this. And there was a pandemic that tells us what could happen. And it's not the pandemic you're thinking of. So from 1915 to the mid-1920s, there was an epidemic of a strange illness known as encephalitis lethargica. It's also sometimes called sleepy sickness. But because that sounds like sleeping sickness, a completely different illness that originated in probably modern-day Gambia, but before it was Gambia, um, and because we tend to slur and speak fast because we're Australian, I'm going to call it awakenings disease. Because <laughs> I'm not a doctor or scientist, and I learned about encephalitis lethargica from the Robin Williams film directed by Penny Marshall, Awakenings. So some modern scientists today argue that the awakenings pandemic of 1915 to 1926 may have been a consequence of the contemporary influenza pandemic, the Spanish flu. But as far as I know, it's neither been confirmed nor denied. So awakenings disease is a form of encephalitis, which is a brain swelling, a brain swelling. Encephalitis usually presents as headache, temperature, a stiff neck and nausea, but awakenings disease um, also gives the sufferers delayed response times. It made them nocturnal instead of diurnal in some cases, and it often saw victims fall into a coma-like state before eventually recovering. Some younger victims of awakenings disease also had severe personality changes that some called, quote, psychopathic end quote. So as far as Nicola's 20 minutes of research can find, awakenings disease never took off in Australia or New Zealand, but it did rock both Europe and North America. But what sometimes happened was that a person would contract awakenings disease, deal with the aforementioned symptoms, then appear to get better. And then a week, a month, a year, three decades after their recovery, some would succumb to post-encephalitic Parkinson's disease and would become immobilised. Thank you. I did that without any training. In a seemingly comatose state. Their eyes might move in response to stimulus, but they appeared to be in a persistent vegetative state. Often their families wanted to believe that too, because to quote the film Awakenings... So this is from a portion of the film. So basically what happens is Robin Williams' character is based on Dr. Oliver Sacks, um, which mm -hmm. some of you might have heard of. Basically, he goes from being a, a bench doctor doing only research to working in a asylum in the 60s and he is introduced to this ward they call the garden because all the patients are in vegetative states all they are is fed and watered and moved around a little bit so it's like mm -hmm. yeah kind of an awful way of talking about it uh and then he tries he starts to investigate the cause of these vegetative states and realizes it's they're all sufferers of um awakenings disease or um encephalitis lethargica so in this scene he goes and visits a medical medical professor i believe who talks about encephalitis lethargica and so hannah do you want to be stage directions and um old doctor or dr sawyer who has an accent they're american they're all american oh i can't do that at all i will do dr sawyer i'll be dr sawyer that's Robin Williams. So you're very hairy. I need you to sound hairy in this scene. I, I am hairy. This is true. So I feel like I belong in this role. You're purple and hairy. So I'll read the stage directions and the old doctor. I wanted to get the um audio for this. And I was like, that's uh, that's uh, questionable. Mm, so my old, old doctor. Most died during the acute stage of the illness, during a sleep so deep they couldn't be roused. A sleep that in most cases lasted several months. The doctors in the dark watch 40-year-old footage projected onto a screen by an old projector. A motionless man in a chair, his head thrust back, mouth gaping open, arms suspended out from an emaciated torso as if from invisible strings. 
Those who survived, who awoke, seemed fine, as though nothing had happened. Years went by, five, ten, fifteen, before anyone suspected they were not well. They were not. A doctor, this doctor decades younger, appears beside the subject on the screen and lowers the man's arms. I began to see them in the early 1930s. Old people brought in by their children, young people brought in by their parents, all of them complaining they weren't themselves anymore. They'd grown distant, aloof, antisocial. They daydreamed at the dinner table. I referred them to psychiatrists. The man on the screen disappears and is replaced by a seal-shaped woman in whom a hundred strange diseases seem to reside. They conspire against her, torment and harass her, force her to perform incessant and meaningless actions with her hands, to pour her chin, to flutter, to adjust glasses that aren't there. Before long they were being referred back to me. They could no longer dress themselves or feed themselves. They could no longer speak in most cases. Families went mad. People who were normal were now elsewhere. The woman on the screen is replaced by a young man, a teenager, who seems composed less of flesh than wax, a wax figure with real eyes. What must it like to be them? On the screen, the young man's eyes, entranced, gaze upward as if trying hard to remember something, or trying hard to forget it. What are they thinking? They're not. The virus didn't spare the higher faculties. We know that for a fact? Yes. Because... Sawyer waits for the old doctor to tell him the reasons, the data, to support the merciful truth. But he doesn't seem to possess it any more than Sawyer does. There's a long science before, because the alternative is unthinkable. So obviously this is a, you look a little bit disturbed, you okay? Yeah, I'm chill. I'm still trying to figure out how a woman looks like a seal, actually. Um, she's kind of bulging weirdly. She's got edema, I think, in the scene. I was just imagining like an actual seal with flippers and fins and... (laughs) She looks like the singer seal. <laughs> so obviously this isn't this is a dramatized account, the film, which I would recommend you watch. Uh, you will cry. I'm not I gonna. Oh, I so, my parents had seen it before. I put it on. They were like, "You are not going to do well in this movie," and I sobbed the whole time. <laughs> um, but it basically, why I really not enjoy, but I think this is a really key example of showing that illness, war, and disability aren't one and done events. You don't get it and get better or you know, deal with it. Sometimes there are long-term consequences. They become they can become chronic and affect people and the community for decades. I, w- I would really recommend people watch this movie, but for the record, Robin Williams' character is based on Dr. Oliver Sacks, who was a gay Jewish man, but the movie was made in 1990, so I can understand why they sort of made him a bit more Hollywood and he's straight in the movie or implied to be straight. Uh, it's my favourite Robin Williams performance, actually, I think, but I've never seen Goodwill Hunting all the way through, so that may change. Um, ironically for this episode, Robert De Niro, who's also in the film as the other main character, he, um, does a really good job in it, but he's now anti-vaccine. Um, he says he's not, but he just, he just questions their efficacy, which sounds anti-vaccine to me. And he works with Robert F. Kennedy Jr., who's a committed anti-vaxxer. Unfortunately, he's like the worst of the Kennedys. Even the guy who had his daughter lobotomized wasn't as bad as him. Wow, Um, that's saying something. Sorry, that's, yeah, that's a lot to throw at you in, in like, one sentence. Hannah, thoughts? I'm just going to go have a nap. Is that chill? <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> Basically, what we're trying just, to say... I'm just questioning the efficacy of naps, you know? The science isn't settled. Actually, they don't know much about sleep, but that's another issue. That's what we <laughs> to talk about. It's just a good audio book if you're chilling. Basically, what we're trying to say with this discussion is throughout the last hundred years, there's been an absence of interest in the consequences of illness and war. You win or you lose. You die or you get better. There's no room for the sick, the maimed or the mentally altered. Within this is, of course, a danger of swerving too far to the doomest of glooms and writing off every man who returned home from World War I as one of what Professor Bruce Gates termed the, quote, war-wrecked generation. There's a reason I gave you that line. The war wake went away first. <laughs> we are going to discuss women who were affected by the gendered role placed upon them when their family members arrived home from the war with a disability, either mental or physical, and also the effects of gendered expectations on those men. So first the worst? First the worst. We've already discussed Elizabeth Wilkinson, not Wallace, as Nicole's written here. Sorry. 
But she was not the only woman killed by her husband following his return from the war and becoming disabled. In 1926, returned serviceman and railway accountant Walter Beer shot his wife and daughter in the head and then killed himself. Newspapers of the time described the murder-suicide down to how many shots Beer fired and where the bullets penetrated the bodies of his wife and toddler daughter. Beer's role as the murderer was de-emphasised in the press in favour of bringing, about other, bringing out other qualities. The vision problems he had from being gassed in the war and how he was a hard worker for the railway. Many newspapers noted that Beer was a returned soldier, mentioning the quote, war veterans lapse, end quote, in their headlines. Beer was found to have committed familicide and suicide due to a quote, temporary mental aberration, end quote. Beer ended his wife and daughter's lives and the focus, not the blame, remained on him. Yeah, it was completely passed over to his mental illness that he'd gotten and they heavily implied it was from the war yeah. itself. But nothing was really done. Women were often not blamed for, suicide, for the men's suicide and violence per se, but they were discussed as a trigger for it. In January 1921, another returned soldier killed himself when a woman he was interested in rejected him. Uh, in this case, it wasn't confirmed to be a suicide by the coroner, as his death could have been an accident on the train line, but the soldier did send his wallet to the woman who rejected him before he was found along the train line near Elstonwick, so it looked like in a way he'd planned the suicide to punish her. Women in wartime and postal periods, as we have discussed on this podcast before, are often expected to take on caring roles. For the longest time, the only publicly acceptable roles a woman could take in the military sphere were either as canteen workers, sock knitters, support style, or as nurses. This ideal of women as natural carers and nurturers carries across into the peacetime sphere, and women were seen as the figures meant to care for soldiers who came home with mental or physical disabilities, be they the men's mothers, sisters, or wives, or women part of the family circle often called fictive kin by Marina Larson. Women were expected to take care of soldiers even if they weren't related or had known them before the war. There were even ads in newspapers calling out for young women to marry disabled soldiers. The intent behind this is loaded. It's a mix of 60,000 of our young dead are, uh, men are dead, you can't be fussy, but also these men need carers, they should find a wife to do that for them. One article asked, why should disabled soldiers be, quote, condemned, end quote, to a life of celibacy simply because they were disabled? Women should stop being so picky. Some organisations that cared for injured or disabled Anzacs, such as blind Anzac hostels or hostels for nervous men, did have matchmaking practices for men, and some women fell in love with these and married disabled men without the pressure from newspaper ads falling upon them. But it's inescapable that there was an ex expectation some of these women would enter into these marriages more as carers than wives. And you can bet the men didn't always appreciate it either. One soldier recalled a woman saying when she saw him on the docks, what a shame, he was getting off the boat, he wasn't cruising the docks. What a shame, and such a fine looking fellow too, because he'd suffered damage to the left side of his face and his eye. This increased his anxiety about his new looks because he'd been re rendered as an object of pity. Many disabled soldiers upon returning to Australia did their best to avoid the cheering crowds of onlookers who would assemble at the docks to welcome them home. Another group of returned servicemen who suffered uniquely after coming back to Australia were those who had become involved in the Soldier Settlement Scheme. So the Soldier Settlement Scheme is detailed in the book The Last Battle by Melanie Oppenheimer and Bruce Skates. Basically, as we kind of talked about earlier, the Soldier Settlement Scheme was a policy wherein returned servicemen were giving plots of land following their repatriation. The idea being that they'd make a living off the land. Some of this land was taken off Aboriginal people in the area, and none of the land was given to Aboriginal servicemen, who officially didn't exist anyway because they had been barred from enlisting, though many still did. Land confiscated included part of Corrindirk Aboriginal Reserve, out at modern-day Hillsborough Sanctuary. So you might think, apart from, you know, the blatant racism and discrimination, that this is a pretty good idea. Not only does it give the men a chance to be in touch with nature, which is good for mental health, but it also makes them self-sufficient so they don't need a pension, stopping the government from wasting money. In that case, you sound like a conservative voter. What are you doing here? Bonus points for getting this far into our podcast, but I, I don't know if you're in the right place. I think they are if they're willing to listen to alternate points of view. That's true. 
Soldier settlers were promised a land fit for heroes, but often this land had gone unclaimed by previous settlers because it was shit. Hard-packed earth or huge swathes without access to water. Some women were permitted to take on pots in their own right, as were one nurses or the family members of men who died at war. But they were not expected to, su- to succeed. One woman was given a block of land with no access to water, which is, I have heard, quite a crucial part of running a farm. Yeah, she had got to use a neighbour's dam, and so she had to walk, I think it was two miles a day to collect water. And I actually oh. moved 100 kilos of water this afternoon because our pool was um, flooding. So I That's used, it was like, so I, in addition to draining part of it, I moved some into the water tank because there's no chlorine in it because it has all been so diluted by all the rain. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I moved, so I moved about 100 litres of water, probably like 20 metres you know, like in, in buckets of about 30 litres each. And it's like so difficult. And mm-hmm. the fact is, if you're carrying anything other than water, if you drop it, it's okay. Because like mm-hmm. if it's bread, you can even dust it off. But if it's water and it spills, you have to go back. And also the thing with carrying water, like water's heavy, like it's the weight of something. But it it's moves around this. so you can't get a good centre of gravity on it. It's not like something that's just heavy and you can grab I it. Changed, I had to change my pants before we recorded this because I had water to <laughs> That's what you say, anyway. They need a wash, anyway. (laughs) So, more often, the wives of soldiers were plunged into life as frontier women, isolated with their husbands from support networks and life in towns and cities. In addition, some of the men who'd been given blocks had physical disabilities, which makes it difficult to farm without more modern supports for people with disabilities. It's a lot easier to walk with a modern prosthetic leg than one made of wood, metal and canvas. Cars, motorbikes, pushbikes, or even horses were often unavailable or unaffordable. If a man had returned from the war with what was then known as shell shock or a recurrent physical issue, his wife would often have to take over his duties on the farm, along with also doing her own domestic duties and bearing or raising children and caring for her husband, as we talked about earlier. So this isn't to say that some families didn't succeed or even thrive on their new blocks of land, but even now, it's physically and mentally draining to be a farmer in Australia. So how much of a chance do you think these men really had? For support in the regional and rural areas, some small towns did develop women's rooms. So while the husband trotted off to the pub on a trip into town or to the feed store or whatever, this gave women a place to gather and share their thoughts and experiences as well as let their kids play together. And so this is actually where the Country Women's Association comes from, which is still a vital group providing support for women and families throughout Australia in the regions and rural areas. And so, bagging a sponge cake recipe. And a bang and sponge cake recipe, as as expected, yes. So, um, though there were some other organisations set up to help women and soldiers' families care for their men, there was relatively little support from the Repatriation Department, which is sometimes called the Repat, which would eventually become the Department of Veterans Affairs. Um, it often fell to women to advocate for their husband, brothers or fathers' pensions, doing the bulk of administrative work, so writing to the Repat and their local MPs begging for an increase to their meagre petition. It took one woman years to get her husband approved for a pension. He'd lost a leg at Gallipoli. But the repat questioned whether he deserved the pension because, hey, where was the leg? Can you produce the leg? Can you prove he lost it at Gallipoli? So if you have spent a lot of time battling with Centrelink during lockdown, just know Mm. you're part of a grand tradition of being fucked over by government departments. So other women left widowed by men who died after the war of what we would now term war-related injuries like suicide, um, they were unable to access a war widow's pension because the government, the repat, determined it wasn't from a war-related issue. You did the um, that internship at the National Archives, didn't you? Project Albany. Yeah, yeah. Um, that like, so you had to read through the repat files as you were digitizing them, uh-huh. and it's just such a it's such a bummer. Like, there's just so many files of women being like. Look at all this very clear evidence of why I deserve a pension for my husband's injuries or death. And the repat yep. being like, meh, we don't know. And it's and you wouldn't know for weeks if you'd been rejected or accepted because mail, like at least now you get rejected right away, mm. you know? Oh, you can Google, like, what did I do wrong on my settlement application? But there is no support community for this apart from just... And if you wanted to go to a non-government organisation to get help, like a charity, often these were religious-based charities mm-hmm. or like faith-based. So if you weren't doing things that they felt were appropriate, they could also just reject you out of hand. One such case was that of Evelyn Wallace. Her husband, Gordon, 
had suffered severe facial injuries during mid-1917, and the majority of his jaw was blasted away, along with his teeth and lips, by shrapnel. Somehow he survived this and was repatriated to Australia, undergoing several reconstructive surgeries. Regardless, he could only eat mashed food and suffered a persistent cough and digestive issues. He became a depressed alcoholic who suffered stares in public when people looked at his face. In 1954, the day after Anzac Day, April 26th, he was found dead in the Yarra, either of suicide or a drunken misadventure. Despite the link between his alcoholism and potential suicide and his war experiences, his wife still had to beg the government for a pension. I do wonder why he didn't wear a prosthetic face. I assume they were hard to breathe in sometimes. And they were often made of tin. I was and wrong. It's copper. And we will and talk about it later. And on that note, segue. So now, part two of our episode, which we introduced very classily. Anna Coleman Ladd, the mother of anaplastology. We wanted to cover Anna for two reasons. One, she's an American, so she comes in at the end of the war, which makes it nice and simple. Johnny come lately's. And two, the first episodes I wrote for this season of Women of War were inspired by my interest in Harold Gillies, the big Mac daddy of modern plastic surgery. So he began his work in World War One. So I was like, why not look at the person who dealt with the same issues with completely different techniques in the same period? So we're not going to look in detail at why the US was late to World War One today. That will come in another episode. They did support the Entente, that is, Russia, France, Britain, and all the associated colonies and dominions of France and Britain through cash loans. But the US primarily had a policy of isolationism and fuck you, I got mineism, and there's a whole lot of internal politics going on at the same time, and President Wilson's like, we should do this, and other people are like, we shouldn't do that, and it's just a mess. So And then the Beatles you know. are like, uh oh, Mr. Wilson. But that's about and Harold. The Beatles Wilson. were not born yet, so they weren't there. No, they were not. Um <laughs> but yes, we'll leave that for another day. The US I'm sure there's someone in America who was like some woman like advocating for men to go to war to be men so let's try and find her or something so the u.s officially declared war Actually, on germany on that teddy teddy roosevelt was very much men should be men and they become men by fighting in war note Sorry. the complete absence of surprise on my beautiful face <laughs> so there would have been there would have there, that that was around that thought the u.s officially declared war on germany in april 1917 but it took almost a year to get the soldiers the american expeditionary force aef up to scratch and over to the battlefields of europe but why was anna coleman lad in europe she was ahead of the curve she and her husband dr maynard lad had hopped over to serve with the american red cross Dr. Ladd um, in part ran a hospital while Anna opened up what became known as the American Red Cross Portrait Studio. But let's go back to before the American entry into the war, before Europe collapsed into chaos, to Pennsylvania in the early 1880s, where Anna Coleman Ladd was being raised by her two wealthy parents, Mary and John Watts. Anna's parents' wealth meant that as Anna grew, she could indulge in her passion for art, especially sculpting. She spent some time in Paris and Rome studying sculpture in the early 1900s, including the works of Bernini. Her talent was obvious from early on, and she focused on small bronze statues, which was seen as an appropriate medium for female sculptors. These also made it relatively easy for her to gain commissions. In 1905, she married Dr. Maynard Ladd, who was a bit of a lad, and relocated to Boston, where her husband was based. In Boston, her career reached a new height and she provoked scandal. One of her sculptures, Wind and Spray, a group of naked people dancing in a ring of waves, was displayed in San Francisco to the shock of the locals. When it was later displayed in Boston, the nudity upset so many people, or more likely the nudity upset very few loud people, and the artwork was withdrawn from public view. So yeah, Anna also sculpted another piece called Triton Babies, which is two fat kids frolicking in a fountain. But from another angle, it looks like they're not frolicking, they're doing something else. Um, and for some reason, naked kids are okay, even if adult nudes are not in the Boston art scene. And Triton Babies became a feature of the Boston Public Garden. I actually get really creeped out by like sculptures of kids. I don't know what it is. Like I like really creepy things usually. And I'm like, oh, there's a fat baby in a fountain watching me. Oh no. So um, Anna was also... Yeah, thank you. Um, so a Anna was also commissioned to make a statuette of the celebrated Italian actress Eleonora Duse, 
who usually refused um like any like interpretations of her pub of her private self so this is actually one of only three artistic interpretations that Duze ever allowed of herself of her like self as not acting she was very what we would call a method actor um mm. i think so anna also sculpted busts of anna pavlova the famous delicious. russian ballerina sorry delicious I know, and this is where the, the dessert comes from, yeah. And um, Anna Pavlova also invented what would become the modern point shoe. She also sculpted a bust of Ethel Barrymore, who is a famous actress, part of the Barrymore family. Um, and so she's the great-great-grandmother, I think, of Drew Barrymore, but I couldn't figure it out and I only spent two minutes and I was like, I'm bored now. It's yeah. nepotism all the way up and all the way down. <laughs> like, what more do you want? So Anna was working in elite circles as an artist for elites, but she didn't rest on her laurels. She also wrote novels and plays, including a 1930 book, 13 book, sorry, The Candid Adventurer, which satirised Bostonian high society of the time. And then war. And then war! In late 1917, as the American government and military prepared to enter the European theatre, Anna's husband Maynard was appointed by the American Red Cross who hopefully was still remembering Clara Barton. Go back to our last two episodes. Uh, Maynard was appointed to run the Children's Bureau of the American Red Cross out of northeastern France, behind the military lines. Anna actually stayed in the US for a while before learning about the work of a man called Francis Derwent Wood in London. Francis was a British sculptor who'd been too old at the onset of World War I to enlist, so he volunteered to work in hospital wards to support the war effort. There, he was exposed to the gruesome injuries of World War I battlefields. At first, he made better splints for the men who needed them, lighter and more comfortable. But then he realised he could apply his artistic talents to those who had facial injuries. This inspired him to open a new clinic, the Masks for Facial Disfigurement. It was also sometimes called the Tin Noses Shop. We're not sure how many soldiers received facial injuries in World War I, but it's estimated that in the Battle of the Somme alone, there were 20,000 facial injuries for the British side alone. I made you say alone there twice. I'm very sorry about that. That's okay. So usually um, with facial injuries for both soldiers and civilians um, who had suffered injuries before the war, um, if they wanted a mask to hide their face wounds or what was missing, um, it would be made of rubber. So as many of us now know from wearing masks correctly over our noses and mouths during the COVID-19 pandemic and not showing off our noses like utter twats, if your mask is the wrong fabric or the wrong fit, it can be really difficult to wear for long periods of time. So can you imagine wearing a thick rubber mask over part of your face all the time? So Francis, it's fine. <laughs> so Francis decided to make, every time I learn more about historical methods of treating like anything with your face, I'm like, people who say they can't breathe in masks are goddamn lies <laughs> like there yeah. are people who genuinely have trouble with them because they might have like a disorder or trauma and that's totally fine but don't walk around with your nose hanging out you look like a tit or more particularly through your chin i saw an i think it was the onion and it was like um breaking news nose connected to respiratory system <laughs> <laughs> So um, Francis Derwentwood decided to make his masks out of thin copper using pre-war images of the men, if they existed, to reconstruct the parts of the face they'd lost. Often the masks were attached to the head using glasses or thin strings as to be as unobtrusive as possible. This was happening parallel to the work of Dr. Harold Gillies in developing plastic surgery techniques for men whose faces were injured in World War I. I assume there was like an element of cost differences between like actual plastic surgery and getting a mask? I have always actually assumed that the soldiers were treated for free and I've never seen anything about soldiers not being able to pay for yeah. immediate treatment. Um, I feel like some men didn't qualify for plastic surgery. There was at least one case Gillies dealt with with a man who'd suffered incredible burns. Like I saw a picture and like he wouldn't survive today, honestly, mm. I don't think. Um, and they were like, we can give you plastic surgery, but you have to wait like another six months. You need to be more healed because it's such a strain to put someone under anesthetic. And the guy insisted on getting the surgery. He got a really bad infection and he just died like that. Mm. So some men wouldn't qualify. Um, Gillies usually had to work with what was left. And if there wasn't enough left, it was just harder. He's inventing this stuff as he goes. Um, there's a video we'll put on the social medias of Anna Coleman Ladd working and there is one soldier in there of oh, this poor man. He's got basically below the ridge of his nose, his whole face is flat, like it's gone. 
Um, he still has his jaw, which is very lucky because some men did lose their jaws and then they, they couldn't eat solid food for the rest of their lives. Mm. And, like, I don't know what Gillies would have really been able to do uh, as well as that Gillies is only working in England, so it, the news might not have spread widely yeah. enough. And it's experimental. And some men probably yeah. wanted a mask because it was quicker to get a mask and go home than to sort of hang around in London for years and years and years. And you're right, like, with, you know, surgery, even today there's risks with, you know, Anitha's and anesthetics that's the word i'm looking for so like you know 1918s 1920s there is also extra risk to surgery too so you might be like let's just have a mask it's quicker it's done like it's less intrusive yeah so anna heard of the work of francis Stewart wood and reached out asking for both his advice and offering her own sculpting knowledge so they could improve on the mask design Eventually, Anna reached out to the American Expeditionary Force and asked if she could go to France to apply Wood's techniques herself to the injured soldiers there. The AEF said no, because husbands and wives were not allowed to be allowed to serve in active war zones at the same time because they might forget about the war and go on and just bang all the time, just forget everything else. Okay, um, that's definitely not why. <laughs> what the hell, man? <laughs> that's definitely why. Anyway, moving on, Anna, undaunted, reached out to General Pershing, commander of the AEF, and received special permission. Kind of him. Yes. But, remember, Anna was also very wealthy and well-known. Her fame would have definitely helped get her across the Atlantic. So Anna linked up with the American Red Cross and travelled to Paris. There, she set up her own little Red Cross agency, the American Red Cross Studio for Portrait Masks, because the Americans have no sense of humour, though, didn't get a cool little name, like the Tin No Shop. She had four assistants, uh, a mix of men and women, uh, to help her. So Anna and her assistants um, did sort of like a holistic method of care in addition to making the masks. They also focused on making their patients as comfortable as possible with the process, ignoring their injuries and focusing on like light conversation and jokes. Like you're just here to get like a mask. There's nothing like fussy. You're not, your face isn't something to be afraid of. So unlike Francis Derwent Wood, who was probably limited to only treating British and Dominion soldiers convalescing in England, so I'm sure Americans were there as well, um, Anna had access to all Allied soldiers in Paris who needed her help, but American soldiers received expedited treatment at the request of the American Red Cross, which is like, fair enough. Hey, there's like 100,000 more soldiers from the other places who need your help, but okay, we'll put the Americans through first. So, like Francis Derwent Wood's masks, Anna's masks were made of copper, which interestingly does have some antibacterial, antifungal properties. So I wonder if that's why they used it. Um, it's also used as a common medium for sculpture, so it could just be that. Um, but hello, if you're buying, yeah, and if you're buying copper bracelets, so and stuff, that doesn't work. Sorry, if you find out that way. Um, copper, copper tape also doesn't work for snails. Just as a side note, um, I also wonder if because copper is warm like it's a warm orange color i think painting a skin tone on that would be easier than painting it on like mm. something white like because you're starting with a warm base because skin mm. isn't over something white um so who knows who knows who knows and some of her masks were temporarily used by men who were waiting for plastic surgery but in many cases they became permanent cosmetic devices for men who did not want to be stared on the street by strangers or well, they wanted to make their families feel more comfortable around them with their new looks each mask took about a month to make, from go to woe, in a painstaking process. After the man had healed enough from his injuries and any surgeries, they'd take a plaster cast of his face. They'd rubber coat the plaster cast and then use that rubber to cast the copper. Each mask was colour matched to the wearer's face and carefully painted to match their skin tone. They used an enamel-based paint so it was water-resistant. Then they added the facial details of what the men had lost. More than one mask had an eye painted on it to match the one the soldier had lost. Delicacy was key. In addition to her work as a sculptor, Anna was a great painter and would mix paint and would also use human hair to add in eyebrows or facial hair if the men wanted a moustache. Some even sculpted in beautiful detail the lines, wrinkles and eyelashes around an eye, but had a careful hole cut out for the man's actual eye. However, these masks could not assist men whose mouths or noses had been damaged by war, and many men spent the rest of their lives with breathing or eating difficulties. So essentially, they're aesthetic. They're purely aesthetic, but yeah. the amount of confidence you could probably get back from oh, one of these. 100%. Not, yeah. not to downplay them for being aesthetic, but yeah. like just clarifying. Yeah. I, I want to look into gen makers after World War One. I. I wonder how that worked out. 
Anyway, but this isn't to say all facial injuries in World War One were met with doom and gloom. Sure, it was traumatising and this trauma often came in several stages. So first a soldier would come into a hospital after being injured and go through days, weeks or months of recovery and debating what meagre World War One options were available to fix his face. He'd have to deal with the stares and responses of the public and also himself. So there's actually a reason Harold Gillies banned mirrors in a lot of his wards in the hospitals because the men would often just stare at themselves. Um, so then the soldier, if he'd like recovered enough and made a decision, he would be able to write and tell his family in England, France, Canada, New Zealand or Australia that he'd suffered some injuries to the face and he might look a bit different when he came home. He might be used to his new looks by the time he got off the boat in Melbourne or Auckland, but his family could not have seen them by then probably. Their shock or dismay or whatever reaction they had on seeing him for the first time might cause him additional trauma or anxiety. The masks couldn't prevent this entirely, but as they do give the impression of a paralysed face, but it was less obvious than some of the injuries these men got during a war of empires. However, some men did make games of their facial injuries. One Queensland soldier could whistle through two holes in his neck and even blow out matches, which became his party trick. Um, some men with wartime facial injuries even came to great success. As my dad reminded me, John Gorton, the Prime Minister of Australia and later bonkers public commentator on why marijuana should be legalised and why SBS should be defunded and a lot of other crazy shit, um, among other positions. He actually suffered severe facial injuries as a pilot in World War II, including breaking both his cheekbones. He was also a child of unmarried parents and was maybe born in Wellington. So there's just a lot going on with John Gorton. Wild ride. Yeah. Anna, like Frances, made an effort to teach the mask-making to local people so they could carry on her work. Though the Americans suffered appalling casualties in their one year of World War I, due in part to General Pershing's rejection of British and French advice, what would they know? They've only been fighting the war since 1914. It's fine. The needs of the French and other allied nations for this sort of art was much higher than the Yanks. And the French and Serbians understood the vital work of Anna Coleman Ladd, and she was awarded the Legion d'Honneur, which is the highest award given in France. Josephine Baker also received this award for her actions in World War II, so check out our episode on her as well. Apart from the Legion d'Honneur... I looked this up because I was interested. So yeah, um, she was awarded Legion d'Honneur Croix de Chevalier Calas, so that makes her a knight or a dame. But knight's cooler. Night is cooler. Um, Night is cooler. Serbia also awarded Anna the Order of St. Sava, which until the war had only been given to civilians who performed particularly amazing achievements benefiting the state. And in 1914, the award was expanded to also cover soldiers. And Nikola Tesla, who I am named after, also received this award in 1892. You were not named after Nikola Tesla. So Anna's time in France was relatively brief, around 11 months. By training up her assistants to make the masks for men, she put herself out of a job. And besides, she wanted to go home. That's valid. Yeah. You can't blame her. Like, no one asked her to go. I want to get out of home, but that's a different story. (laughs) She did not return home unchanged, however, and her art style shifted. Instead of free-flowing naked people playing in the ocean and fat babies having a whale of a time in fountains, her style became more modern and reflective. This also parallels greater art shifts happening across the world at the time as creators attempted to process the war to end all wars. Interestingly though, some of her post-war sculptures of soldiers still depict them with perfect and intact faces. Then again, this is probably part of the commission requirements, not like her own personal choice. Following the war, Anna was contacted by the American Legion at Manchester-by-the-Sea, which is in Massachusetts, and commissioned to make their war memorial. It's a far cry from her earlier works and depicts a corpse rotting, entangled in barbed wire. We've found some low-quality images of it, and Nicola's currently trying to chase down someone at location to get a photo of it, but we do have a listener in Massachusetts, so hello to you, and if you're listening and you're near Manchester-by-the-Sea and you're fully vaccinated, maybe hit us up, send us a pic, slide into our DMs. American veterans who commissioned the memorial wanted the memorial to fully show the horrors of the Great War in many ways a far cry from the Australian memorialisation of the conflict that we began the episode with. Anna Common Ladd had a couple of kids with Maynard, one of whom is somehow related to Kevin Bacon, and again, family trees, I couldn't be bothered, and they eventually retired to California in the late 1930s, and she died in Santa Barbara in 1939. I'm actually always weirdly pleased when people who were involved in World War I die in 1939. It's sort of like a, you don't have to see it again. Yeah. I'm not doing this again. Get yeah, me like, out of here. You, it was the war to end all wars, and you don't know that it wasn't if you die before World War Two. 
I feel like in 1939, if you like looked at the international situation, you were like, like oh, this is going to You know get it's worse. probably coming, but you don't know for certain. So you could die yeah. in denial. Yeah, like, bye, okay. bitches. <laughs> I guess in America as well, it's not 1939 they have to worry about. It. It's like 1942? Yeah. 41 or 42? 1941. Oh, it's the end of the year. That so always confuses me. Yeah. December 1941 yeah. is Pearl Harbor. Yeah. Oh, what a movie. What a film. Even though she'd only worked in the war for less than a year, for the rest of her life, Anna received letters from the men who she had helped make more comfortable with their appearances. She toured and gave lectures speaking about what she'd done. Even as plastic surgery techniques improved in leaps and bounds, frowned in part by men such as Bay, Dr. Harold Gillies, the techniques practiced by Anna and Francis Derwent Wood and other sculptors still persist today. And today the field is called anaplastology, a subfield of prosthetics that restores missing or disfigured parts of the body or face through artificial means. It remains a blend of art and science and improves quality of life for thousands around the world. As many have pointed out, World War I and World War II gave rise to incredible developments in medical and military technologies and techniques, but at an incredible human cost. Unfortunately for their users, the masks made by both Anna and Francis's workshops wore out quickly or looked odd on their wearers' faces as the wearer aged and the mask did not. They could also become chipped and dented and the men often ended up becoming isolated or hiding themselves away from the wider world in shame, which they should have been... What? I was trying to say I hate... Because, like, the shame doesn't... The shame comes in part from how they felt about how they looked, but it came from also how people reacted to how they looked. And I just hate the idea that maybe when I was a kid I'd be walking down the street and see someone and like it would be clear on my face that I was looking at them and being shocked at what I saw yeah um and it just makes me really sad to think about they got this double barrel or triple barrel chain like they've come back from this war Mm -hmm. they survived getting the attention the respect they almost deserve if we're going to give them respect they don't get what they have earned they hate how they look in some cases and they also feel like people are judging them Mm -hmm. and scared of and that's really depressing and I feel like talking about shame is it's kind of presented as like a personal thing like you feel ashamed but it's it is other people putting on stuff onto you as well sadly not many of these masks have survived um and some theorize they are buried with their owners which makes a lot of sense and I quite like I guess it sort of it helps them feel whole and who they were yeah there's also, um, as far as I can tell, there are no colour images of people wearing Anna's masks, so it's hard to tell exactly how effective they were. But mm-hmm. I didn't go into stuff, but the level of detail, like, they wouldn't just paint it flesh colour, they would paint, like, a blue tinge so it looked like the man had shaved. So it wasn't just, like, skin tone, it was, like, skin tone across the spectrum. This has to look different when they're cold and when they're hot. It mm-hmm. was really delicate stuff. That's so clever. Yeah. So impressive. We do have some images and videos of Anna and her work that we found online. Um, and as Nicola said earlier, we'll put those on our social media at Women of War Pod on Twitter, Insta, and Facebook. Yeah, and uh, that's that's that. That's my throw everything at the wall episode and see what's. <laughs> I feel um, like so it's stuck. Thank you. Stuck like a like Anna Coleman lads mask to the face of a soldier. <laughs> um, so yeah, she used the same methods as Francis. Like they'd often like give them glasses and attach the mask to the yeah. glasses, um, which is very clever if, as well. If you want to so, see a modern representation of that, there is an episode of Miss Fisher's Murder Mysteries where they cover this, and they have one of the returned servicemen who has mm-hmm. a mask attached to his glasses. Is that the one where they like have the dead body of the serviceman and she's like, "Yeah, I totally had his body brought back from Europe. It's fine." Like that would no, be that's a different one. Okay. So this is actually going to be our last episode for this season uh, and we will be back probably in 2022. Look, it's looking like that based yeah, so, on um, life. Yeah, life's been pretty pretty busy lately. I'm in the middle of transitioning from university to professional life for the like third time uh, and Hannah is finishing <laughs> up her PhD because she's brilliant and understands methodology super well. That's a, that's, that's a lie. I don't understand anything about methodology. No historian does. We just pretend we do. That's fine. So um, I'd also like to thank, we'd also like to thank my friend Dorian um, for providing his voice acting skills reading We Are The Maimed and In Flanders Fields. So Dorian is a trans, queer and disability rights activist and artist in Melbourne and he can be found at on Twitter at sin underscore d underscore sickle. 
I don't know what his handle means, but there it is. We'll put it in the show notes as well. So thank you, Dorian. You are a star. And since this is the final season, final episode, not final season, we will be back. Don't worry. This is the final episode of season two. Uh, thank you to everyone who has listened to any or all of our episodes. Uh, special shout out to Mary D on Twitter and Ash's dad because you're our two top champions and we love you. Um, we'll be back at some time. Hopefully by then Victoria won't be in lockdown and we will not have to hide under blankets to record, which would be the dream. Oh, I miss it. I can't wait. I can't wait. Okay. Everybody uh, get vaccinated. Thank- <laughs> yeah, everybody please get vaccinated. If you have not gotten vaccinated, I am begging you. Um, thank I you want so to go to listening. brunch. I'm very Melbourne. I want to go to brunch. <laughs> I don't miss brunch so much. I miss the option of brunch. <laughs> Although I did appreciate when I got my vaccination yesterday I was at Melbourne Museum and there was a coffee van next to the queue to get into the vaccination centre which is peak Melbourne I enjoyed that yeah. thoroughly well they know what people are about I guess they do they, they know their audience uh, uh, and last thing if anyone out there is like working in a hospital or in the medical sector right now thank you so much we will not do you the disservice of calling you heroes because heroes implies we don't have to pay you more you deserve pay you rises and bonuses and sorry you don't want to stand in your driveway and clap and do nothing actually meaningful i don't want to stand in my driveway and clap and do nothing um i i just really appreciate it your work might not be appreciated by some um and we just hope you're dealing with all the extra pressure that's being put on you right now in the best way you can shout out to sue you're doing a fabulous Uh, thanks mom for vaccinating everybody (laughs) really appreciate it thanks mom (laughs) um have we rambled enough, do you think? I think so. Do you have anything else to say, Hannah? No. We love you all. Every single person who listens, we love you. Uh, and give us a review and we'd love you even more. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Thank you so much. Bye. In response. A lamp just fell on me. <laughs> Ow. Oh, lockdown recording. Oh, no.